We'd Like a Word. Welcome back to We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And our guest is Stephanie Scott, author of What's Left of Me is Yours, set in the shocking and sleazy world of marriage breaker-uppers in Tokyo. Um, You're not from Japan, though, yourself. I'm not, no. I'm half Singaporean. I'm racially half Indian, half British. um, And I was born and raised in Singapore. And my family is still there. Uh, In fact, both sides of my family, the Asian and the British, have all spent their lives in Southeast Asia. So we've always been in that area and drawn to that area. And you've got kind of an interesting background from what they were doing during World War II. Yes, well, both both sides of my family, the, the Indian side and the British side, they both fought against the Japanese in Asia during the Second World War. Um, and some of them were in the army and were captured um, and killed and others were civilians. So my Indian grandmother was actually in Malaysia when the Japanese cycled down the peninsula to take Singapore. And she had to flee for her life. She, she, she always came back to the point that she never got to take her exams. She never got to, to have any qualifications and it's annoyed her immensely. It's not, it's perhaps not what would have been foremost in my mind um, when fleeing an army, but it was foremost in hers. <laughs> and so, Damn you, I haven't taken my exams. Yes, yeah. exactly. She was really, really enraged. And, and actually, at one point, you know, my, my great grandfather, uh, she was at, at boarding school in Malaysia. He went to get her and she, she refused to go with him. Um, and I just don't know what you do. You're a country on the brink of war. There's going to be an invasion. Your daughter well, he won't probably be was the one who said to the Japanese, come on, you tell her. She won't listen to me. <laughs> he was, I mean, and he was, he was extremely preemptive, I think, you know, he, in that he, he decided to flee very, very early on, but they had to um, they had to leave their homes and flee into the jungles and rubber plantations of Malaya. Once the army had moved through to take Singapore, the soldiers that were left uh, to occupy Malaya were burning the skulls, all the school books in the vicinity. And my grandmother, having um, fled her home, her priority at the time was reading material. So she. <laughs> She actually, she sent my um, my great uncle, who was a little boy, out, um, you know, towards the, the piles of burning books. And um, she asked him to get some for her. Because my, my great-grandfather had actually, he'd created a false room um, in the place where they were staying. And he'd hidden all of his daughters and, uh, and my, my aunts in there. And um, my great aunt's in there as well. And so my grandmother really, really wanted reading material. And she sent her brother out to get these books. And he came across a Japanese soldier who was organizing the burning of the books. And he, you know, it's extremely dangerous for my great uncle at this point. But the soldier said, why do you want them? And he said, well, my sister loves to read. And the soldier said, well, where is this sister? And so he brought him home and grandma actually befriended him and taught him English. And they corresponded for years, even after he was repatriated back to Tokyo after the war. And grandma became fluent in Japanese. My Indian grandfather was fluent in Japanese. He wrote a book on how to speak Japanese because obviously you couldn't work during the occupation unless you knew the language. And uh, my grandmother 
she did go back to school. She did get her qualifications and she became an international lawyer, actually. And she worked with Japanese clients for the rest of her life. And she was actually inducted into the Japanese club as an honorary member. So that was my Indian family's experiences. And my, my British family, they fought the Japanese in Burma and Thailand and Singapore. And um, I lost relatives on the death railway. They had a very different experience to my grandmother. Um, you know, there was there was no befriending or <laughs> um, or anything like that. They were tremendously scarred, and I think in some ways never left the battlefield. So mm. I grew up in Singapore with these very different but very rich experiences of the war. And I mean, when I was growing up in Singapore, our school trips would would often be about going to war cemeteries and and walking through the graves and one of my one of my british relatives had never been found no one ever knew where he was and so when i was a child i would walk through the graves and try and find him and it was only actually when i when i started writing that um that i went out to thailand and i did manage to find him and there were some of my relatives uh, who had loved him very much who were still alive and so i think that was of some comfort to them i can imagine yeah yeah You've got plenty of material for several more books, I think. Yeah. This is hopefully the the area for novel number two, if I ever write it. It's it's too good to waste, though, isn't it? It's too good to waste. I I want to read this. Hurry up. I want to read this. (laughs) You sound like my agent. (laughs) What are you going to call it? What's your working title? God, well, the working title, I mean, at the moment, I would quite like to focus on both strands of my family because I'm quite interested in how you know, the British and the Indian sides came together. Um, but also the core, the core story that I'm working on at the moment revolves around my, my grandmother and her sister fleeing into the rubber plantations and living in the jungle during the Japanese occupation. So the working title, if there was to be one, is probably Women in the Jungle. Um, so... <laughs> Good title. Good title. Hooray! I'm sorry. <laughs> You all have placeholders. Yes. Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't even, I don't know. It's pretty strange. I normally write with a title, but uh, the title for the first novel got changed at the very last minute anyway. So oh, what was the original? Oh, the original title was The Sentence. Okay. Interesting. Which had, which had sort of multiple meanings for, you yeah, know, yeah. visual sentences, but also sentences in the stories we tell ourselves, narratives. So, yeah. Yeah, the minute had... you said, the minute you said the sentence, I was drawn back to because I read about the the original murder case, which sort of inspires mm. your book, and I was struck by um, something I read, I think, in one of the Tokyo newspapers, that um, the guy who'd approached the woman who he was meant to seduce, that his opening mm-hmm. sentence was something about asking her where she where you can buy really good quality cheesecake. And I, it struck yeah. me at the time, it's, it's such an innocuous line and all the things that came from that one line, asking someone in a supermarket where to get good cheesecake. One yeah. sentence can actually change an entire life. So, yeah, as you say, lots of meanings. And that was the real thing. Meanings. So in Richard Lloyd yeah. Perry wrote an article about it in The Times and that was the original Yeah, sentence. that was. Yes. And I've, I kept I kept the cheesecake detail, actually. I changed I changed many of the other details and I moved the love story back to the 90s. And so 
only Simiko's detective story remains in the present day. And I changed the characters' backgrounds and family dynamics and, and everything really. But I did keep nods to the original case. And one of them mm. was the cheesecake. And my, my, <laughs> one of my main characters, Rena, the murder victim, is obsessed with cheesecake. And people assume that I am too. I actually can't stand it. <laughs> it was one of the ways. So people, people are always talking to me as though I will, I will, I would love cheesecake, and and I, I hate it, I hate stuff. Yeah. Think, <laughs> thinking of your book number two, um, have you ever heard of a uh, a book called Blood Dark Track by Joseph O'Neill? And it's kind of a memoir, and it's about his two grandfathers, one Irish and one Turkish, both imprisoned in World War Two. One was a member of the IRA, his Irish one. He was interned by uh, the British. Uh, actually, he was, uh, I think he was interned by the Irish, actually. Come to think of it, not the British, and by the Irish government. And his other grandfather was jailed by the British in Palestine. And it's a lovely detective story about family secrets and that. And interesting, two, two different wings of the family. It makes me think a bit of the different experiences of your two families. Thank you. That's so, extremely helpful. I am. And it's I'm very good as well. Blood dark because, you know, I think one of the best ways of learning how to do something is to study how others have done it. So, so thank you so much. That's really helpful. Well, in that on on that note, don't go and watch the film The Breaker Upperers. Have you is heard there... of it? Yeah, no, um, no. It oh, was, no. I, I saw it a couple of years ago on um, I think it was on Netflix. Um, it's, a, it's a film that Taika Waititi was involved in, which is why I, I zoned in on it, because I love Hunt for the Wilder People and Jojo Rabbit and this stuff. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's completely the opposite of your book in the fact it's two young women who find out that the bloke they've been sleeping with, that they're both sleeping with the same bloke, and they, they set themselves up as an agency to break up relationships because they really hate relationships. <laughs> but they go through a they go they go through all sorts of weird stuff like they have to pretend to be cops at one point and then they get mistaken for strippers and it it's it's a comedy <laughs> it's and it's very well it's very well written it's very well directed it's quite funny quite witty it it's not related in any way to the subject of Stephanie's book it really isn't it's it's about two young women who basically are so disillusioned with the idea of relationships that, that they decide they're going to they're going to put themselves out to hire to break up other people's but it's very funny it's very funny and it's quite charming as well very funny typical sort of thing that you get with Taika Waititi's films is always that mix of comedy and, and a little bit of pathos as well the marriage breakup industry in Japan one of the um, is reuniting couples or wow. actually advising people in their relationships you know how 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 they should look, how they should dress, how they should answer this text, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that is a, that is absolutely a new, a new kind of business venture for them. And then there's it's, also this I mean, sounds like curating the sort of thing people curate their Instagram feeds and you know their Facebook yes. feeds, but within your marriage, I'd like yes. you to take over how I appear to my spouse and maybe vice versa. Yes. Oh well, I mean, anecdotally, it's all very um, confusing. One of my best friends is a, a hairdresser and he said that one of the most brilliant things about lockdown that he finds very funny um, are that so many of his clients 
he he does work with a lot of um, models and runway, but he also works with some very wealthy people. And he says that what what is extraordinary is that their husbands will look at them and say, "What is that on your face?" And you know they haven't been able to get Botox or any of the <laughs> any of the peels that they normally would, and so their real appearance is coming through. <laughs> <laughs> Your nose has grown back. Yeah, yeah no, no. <laughs> so you you had to hang around with some of the people in this industry, the breaker uppers. You you met them and talked to them as part of your yeah. research. So yes. what are they, what are they like? Like what do they say? Do they have any qualms or go well? I really wanted to be a an artist, but I'm just I'm, I'm really an actor. I'm just doing this past the time. <laughs> Um, well, actually, what 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 they said when I read articles written by them and and you know when I spoke to them, they said that actually there's a psychological function as well. In many ways, they are like psychologists or therapists um, because, as you say, there's a great element of shame and what can be made public, particularly in Japanese society. People don't often have an outlet. You know, it's not really it's not really acceptable to see a therapist or to seek mental health help. So if you can't turn to your family and you can't turn to your friends and none of this can be made public, then who do you turn to? And so I guess one of the agents that I spoke to was saying that he does often feel very much like a psychologist. And one of, the, one of my very good friends who is a lawyer, she's um, a human rights lawyer, but she also... She's also worked with victims of crime. And what really interests me about her job in that regard is that she will sometimes try and broker a deal with the perpetrator of the crime. And, and she will negotiate with him to try and make amends to the victim. In what way can they make this right? And this is called a jadin. So he'll pay her a sum of money and she can even petition the court for a lighter sentence for him. But first and foremost, I think for this friend of mine who's a lawyer, it's about gaining closure and psychological healing for her client, the victim. And so there's a tremendous overlap, I think, between professions. In China, so the whole reparation thing is, if you're involved in a car accident and you injure someone, you basically end up paying towards their upkeep for the rest of their lives. And there are some quite sinister agencies involved in actually knocking that person off so you don't have to keep paying. Oh, goodness, I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah. Book three, book three. Yeah, because it's, it's, as you said, it's this reparation thing. It's the fact that you, you have, you know, crippled or injured this person. Therefore, you have a moral and fiscal responsibility to help support that person in the future. And to yeah. get out of that, you know, the only way of getting out of that is, that, is to stop them being alive anymore. And it's, um, and it's why, if you know you've hit someone, to actually go yeah. back and run them over to make sure that they die. Because otherwise really? you're going to get stuck with the bills. Yeah, genuinely. It's China. <laughs> so it's the difference between if you are a man or a woman in this doing this job. So you were saying a bit earlier, so some gorgeous young woman turns up and man thinks, hey, how fantastic. She likes me for who I am. And despite our discrepancy in age and all sorts of other things. But am I right in thinking the men tend to go more for reassurance and comfort to hmm. offer that sort of thing rather than maybe a, a, a lost sexual sort of allure. 
I think it can be a range of things, but definitely comfort and security and reassurance and just attention and niceness are a huge part of it. When I first saw um, you know, an agent I spoke to, what struck me about him was that he was so cuddly in appearance, you know, not particularly tall, quite stout, but also, you know, he just looked so approachable and amenable and and friendly and earnest and very different from the kind of hired stud you'd expect. <laughs> not a Lothario. Not a Lothario at all. And it was him who said actually that he feels a lot of the time he feels like a psychologist. Mm, interesting. Very interesting. On that stud-filled note, uh, we've reached the end of part two of this episode of We'd Like a Word with Stephanie Scott, author of What's Left of Me Is Yours. Coming up in part three, vengeance and listener questions. <laughs>